Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Uh, So two weeks ago, uh, Mitchell outlined our church's liturgy, so to speak, or what you can expect uh, almost every week when you come and worship with us corporately. Uh, And so we just decided to totally flip that around. And so today uh, you are experiencing something that we understand is not quite normal. Uh, So again, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, uh, you could turn to Psalm chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use an app on your phone or or if you are... um, uh, you don't own one, uh, there are some in the back of the room that uh, you are more than happy to get up even right now and go grab one. And we'd love for you to keep that uh, Bible, take it home with you. Psalm chapter 12. Uh, so I need you to just give me a little grace as we get started this morning. I need to give you some context. Uh, for some of you, uh, you will be very interested in what I'm about to talk about. Uh, for some others of you, uh, there might be a tendency for you to go, I'm not sure this applies to me. Uh, and so uh, when we get to the text, if you've checked out, I'll make sure to remind you, like, okay, now uh, I need you to clue back in. Uh, so this past Sunday at about 4 o'clock, a report was released Uh, by Guidepost Solutions regarding sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, For some of you, uh, let's just make sure you understand uh, that we are a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Here at our church, we go by often the name, which is also approved Great Commission Baptist. That's who we are. Uh, We can talk more about why we have that partnership and why we belong there at another time, Uh, but that is our home. So specifically, this investigation uh, was ordered by representatives from our churches called Messengers in an overwhelming vote last summer. Uh, And so churches like ours, including ours, I voted for this investigation to happen. This investigation was particularly into this thing called the Executive Committee. The Executive Committee, uh, and in particular, their dealings over the past 20 years. It included over 300 interviews, 20 years worth of communications, legal documents, emails, all sorts of things. The executive committee, you're probably going like, what is that? Uh, And here's what it is. As a committee, it really has two components. Uh, The first component are what we would call trustees. Uh, These are volunteers, pastors, school teachers, accountants, lawyers, just people who belong to churches like this one who give freely of their time uh, to make sure that things in our convention are happening the way that it's supposed to happen. And they're in charge or entrusted with the responsibility of holding our organization accountable to do what we've said we're going to do in a variety of ways. That committee also has a full-time staff. And so those staff members are paid employees. That's a president slash CEO, several vice presidents and uh, media and uh, communication experts, accountants and bookkeepers, people that just take care of the uh, day-to-day responsibilities. All right, what do they do? Uh, Okay, this is where it gets slightly complicated. Hang in here with me. Technically, the Southern Baptist Convention only exists for two days every year. That's it. When all of our churches are assembled for an annual meeting, and the annual meeting is like a business meeting. Think of the most boring church business meeting you've ever been to in your life and multiply that by 7,000. That's what it is, all right? 
two days of a business meeting. Then for the other 363 days, those churches who are technically the owners turn over responsibility for doing what they said need to be, needs to be done for the rest of the year, the, 103, the other 363 days, to the executive committee. Think about it like a property management company. They don't own the house, but they are in charge of making sure that it is rented, that the grass is cut, that the bills are paid, and the rent is collected. Does that make sense? So that's what they're supposed to do. They're not in charge, but they're supposed to operate on our behalf 363 days of the year. They do things like very, it should be very boring things, like making sure that the money that we give to uh, mission efforts ends up where it's supposed to end up. That when we give money and we say this money needs to go to the International Mission Board, that money ends up there. Uh, they're in charge of making sure that any directives or motions that have been made at the convention the previous year are executed. It's not glamorous, and it shouldn't be the topic of discussion very often. Uh, but over the past several years, it has been. And um, that's why this investigation uh, was um, ordered, voted on. So what did this report say? Oh, if I could just extend the metaphor. Basically what the report said is that our property management company, for at least the past 20 years, has cared a lot more about their own reputation than the people who own the property. That they have cared a lot more about their own brand or their own liability than they actually cared about people in our churches. And the report found them to be negligent in following through with instances of sexual abuse that they knew about. I wanna be very clear. There's only one story in the entire report of someone associated with the executive committee actually committing some sort of sexual abuse. Most of the report is about organizational failure. It does include stories of survivors of sexual abuse. They are heartbreaking stories. There are also stories of unbelievable strength about how a handful of women continued to persist in doing what was right for years and years and years in order to hold people accountable for doing what was wrong. It includes lack of action, that a handful of staff members of the executive committee who had immense power acted in ways to protect the brand of the convention rather than, what, than doing what was right in order to protect people. They ignored complaints, refused to listen to survivors of abuse, took months and months to respond to emails and letters or never responded at all. The investigation found that they were dismissive to survivors, stonewalled survivors, and even used intimidation tactics to limit their voices. And maybe, most egregiously, because it means that they could have done this in a variety of other areas, they withheld information from their trustees who were supposed to hold them accountable. Meaning that a lot of people 
who were innocent and wanted to do the right thing are now implicated in this whole thing because people refused to do what they were instructed to do. Thirdly, the report also found they were actively involved in deception. Did they use their positions of influence to deceive other people? They leaned on lawyers and claims of ascending liability to promote inaction. That they continually claimed uh, that a database of sexual abusers was impossible because the legal structure and the theology behind the way we structure our convention, all the while maintaining their own database, just not sharing it with churches. Can you imagine? They knew of people who were credibly uh, accused of sexual abuse, withheld that information from churches, and allowed churches to continue to employ pastors and youth pastors and directors and receive members into their congregations who had histories of abuse. So that's what the report says. How do we respond? Well, I think this morning, uh, we respond by turning to the scripture, uh, which is, I hope and pray at Mercy Hill Church, how we always respond. So if you tuned out with all the convention stuff, you're like, I'm not interested in that, you can tune back in right now. Psalm chapter 12, verse one. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful hath vanquished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbors with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Verse five. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in safety uh, for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure, or the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, and his vileness is exalted among the children of men. Psalm 12 is. A psalm of David is used most likely as a corporate lament, just what we did this morning, to describe abuse and corruption and respond to that sort of corruption. What we find is really a comparison. It's verses 1 through 4 and then verses 5 through 8. So if you're taking notes, I would just write down, it's pretty simple today. Starts with number one, deceitful words. So verse one says, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful is banished from among our children. Is, it, is that not how we feel today? A desperation for faithful, godly, good leadership? I mean, wouldn't you just take like somewhat honest at this point? And maybe some of us today are asking the same question. Are there any godly leaders left? Is there anyone we can trust? Does anybody act faithfully? And by faithful, we mean faithful in the way that God is faithful. 
persisting in doing what is good. Or another way maybe to express this verse would be, are there any pastors left that care about their people? Do we have any leaders in our churches who are left who aren't trying to promote themselves and establish their own platform? So then in verses two and three, the psalmist says, there's no godly ones left. We can't find anybody faithful. But here's what we got. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips, a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and a tongue that makes great boast. So we got. We got people who say empty words, they lie. They don't, they don't say things that correspond to reality. We have flattering lips, we have smooth talkers. They come across really, really great in the 30-minute segment on Instagram, but there's no, no substance there. They speak out of a double heart. It literally means heart, heart. Conflicting desires. Or maybe we would say this, they say one thing, but they do another. That the level of hypocrisy is astounding. All this, again, with flattering lips and a tongue that makes great boasts. That they are self-consumed, caring only about their own reputation, their own brand, how they look in any particular situation. And then verse four, he says, those who say with our tongues we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Do you, you hear what he's saying? He's saying these people of deceitful words believe that their deceitful words is power for them to remain in powerful positions. That they look around and go, oh, we'll just say this. We'll just frame it this way. We'll just concoct this story. We'll control the narrative and we'll have power over people. It's amazing. This is probably written nearly 3,000 years ago. It sounds like today, doesn't it? And this is what we find in the political arena right now. That in response to school shootings, most of the rhetoric is about controlling the narrative so we can get what we want on both sides. This is what we find in the sexual abuse task force report from guideposts about our executive committee stonewalling, hiding behind a team of lawyers, saying one thing while doing another. This is what we find. These four verses describe it accurately. But remember, it's a comparison. So here's number two. Psalmist just points out there are truthful words. Truthful words. Verse five, God speaks. And God says, because the poor are plundered and because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. That God is not blind to what this level of deception has done to people. That God sees and knows that it hurts the poor. That they have been plundered. That it hurts people who are vulnerable. That the needy are groaning for help. 
And God himself says, I will do something about this. I will arise, I will act. I will bring people who are in vulnerable situations, hurting situations, people who feel like they have been plundered by people in control, I will bring them into safety. So verse six then, the words of the Lord are pure, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So the psalmist says the words of the Lord are different than the words of those who abuse their power. There's no flattery. There's no empty talk. There's no deceit. That God's words are pure. God doesn't play a deception game. He speaks what is true. That his words are trustworthy and faithful. And that while we may be surrounded by smooth talkers who bend and twist and distort the truth, that's not who God is. That he is different in character. And then he says God's words are not only true, but they will prove themselves to be true. They're like silver refined in a fire. What what does he mean? So I'm not an expert in precious metals, but the way that I understand it works is with precious metals like silver, you can heat them. And what happens is over time, and with a lot of heat, what's true and pure silver or precious metal separates from the junk, what's not silver. And here's what the psalmist is saying. Not only are God's words pure, but you watch. You give it some time. You watch in the middle of the heat and suffering and sorrow and difficulty and pain. And while the words of a smooth talker will fade or vanish, that the word of the Lord will continue to endure. It will prove itself true. And we know this to be true of all people. Because we know the gospel. That Jesus was refined by fire. That Jesus went through suffering and sorrow. And Jesus was proven to be the Lord of all, the Savior of the world through his suffering. Proving God to be true. And that God's promise that he was going to redeem his people all the way through the Old Testament. Through all the sorrow and darkness, through all the failings of leader after leader after leader in the Old Testament story, we see God's words being proven true in his son, Jesus. Then verse seven, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard this generation forever. It's one step more. Not only does God say what is true, Not only his words trustworthy, but he makes a promise to his people that he will keep his word and he will guard his people. And then verse eight, which might be the weirdest verse in the whole thing, right? Because we got this comparison, people who deceive God who's trustworthy, and we think we're going to end on a positive note, and then it doesn't. 
No resolution. Verse 8. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. So Psalmist wants you to know the reality. There will continue to be wickedness. There will continue to be evil. Even when we have resolved to trust God at his word, even when we are convinced of God's character, even when we know what is true, there will continue to be wickedness. People will continue to find ways to deceive us, and that deception will often be exalted. Why does it end this way? Well, one, because it's true. And two, because you're going to need it. We have great hope in this psalm that God speaks what is true. He is true of character. But the psalmist wants to wake us up to a sobering reality. People will deceive you. You are going to need more than platitudes. Precious moment figurines are not going to get you through this life. Let go and let God is not going to be enough. We must embrace the reality that this world is broken and there is suffering everywhere. And while we in the United States often don't like to talk about that, the truth is the scripture talks about it plainly and forcefully over and over and over again. And when suffering leads to a crisis of faith for most of us, not all of us, but for most of us, the reason is because we're more American than we are Christian. That we've bought into this narrative that our personal comfort is the most important thing in this life. And the scripture never says it. I don't care what the TV preacher says. It's not true. And so we end with this lament. And here's why this is important. If you're taking notes, this might be the only thing worth writing down today. This is it. The spiritual practice of lament shapes our heart to be responsive and resilient. You see that in the text? They were given a gift to come to God in prayer, modeled after this text and a ton of others in the scripture, where we can remember that God's word is true, that God is faithful to keep his promises, and that protects us from having a calloused and hardened heart, that we need that reminder as we survey the world around us, that we're not alone, we're not forgotten, that God is true and God is faithful. And that keeps our hearts responsive, beating. That we practice lament so we don't jump to politics. We practice lament so we don't jump to hard-heartedness. Callous responses that are self-serving, but we practice lament so our hearts can beat for God. So that we, despite what our Facebook feed looks like, can weep and mourn and grieve with families in Texas. 
We don't have to be a people defending any sort of partisan politics. We're responsive, wholehearted people. Not only does lament help us form that sort of responsiveness in our hearts, but also a resilience. Lament keeps us from being gullible, from believing that everything is perfect, that things are going to just be okay. Lament makes us face this sobering reality that as Jesus said in a parable, there's weeds among the wheat, There's a day when that will be sifted out and separated, but that's not today. That it forms us into people who are not easily swayed by public opinion or shifting circumstances or sorrow in the moment. It helps give us hearts that are resilient. And so when you and I experience sorrow, that's what we do. We lament just like Psalm 12. We acknowledge wrongdoing. We call out deception. We bring our complaints to God. When we experience sorrow and suffering, we confess and repent. Confess our own hard-heartedness, our own complicity. We repent. And in lament, we find the strength to reform, to do things differently. And so then I want to take just a couple minutes to tell you in light of the past week in this investigation how our church is responding, how we have responded in some ways already around this idea of reform. First, I want you to know that several months ago our staff discussed how we can train and be better prepared to handle abuse within our church. So about two months ago, our entire staff went through a training uh, in order uh, to be better prepared to understand and respond to instances of abuse, understand our responsibility as a church. Secondly, we changed some of our processes, especially around uh, kids' ministry, people working with uh, people, uh, folks in our church who are underage. We changed our onboarding for that, just one step where there's a training that you have to go through in order to be a kids ministry volunteer. Now, let me, I'm, I'm gonna say something to you because I love you. Many of you who serve in kids have been asked to do that training even though you're not new to the process. Just do it. Can I say it that bluntly? If you've gotten an email, if you get an email again, if you get an email in three weeks, just do it. I think this is important enough that I can just say it that bluntly, right? It's our fault for not having that fully developed until, until now. We're asking you to do it. Can you just do it? Third, I want you to understand that there's a measure of accountability here and you're a part of that process. I wanna be super clear. At Mercy Hill Church, here's what we have authority over. We have authority over members of this church. That's it. 
And that authority is limited to your involvement in this church. Now, this is important because we're talking about your soul. So I don't want you to think that it's not an important or vital authority, but I want you to understand it is limited. Which means the leadership of this church, me, I have zero to do with your legal problems. If you committed a crime, it is not up to us to forgive you of that or let you off the hook. That's not a decision that we have the authority to make. Our church can pray for you. Our church can forgive you. Our church can ask you to do the right thing. Our church can kick you out if we want to. But what you did is between you and the law. And in Mercy Hill, we will call the police. And you hold me accountable to that. Said it publicly, it's like the second time I've said it publicly. And so if I'm ever, you think playing favorites with a friend or trying not to report or do something correctly, you just come to my office and yell at me and you yell as loud as you want. I just want to be very clear. It's not the way it works. That's what got us into this mess. All right. Everybody take a deep breath. Good. Okay. I need to take a deep breath. You didn't need to take a deep breath. I need to take a deep breath. The other thing that's important here is we recognize, according to the statistics, that there are probably more than we could even imagine people in our church who've experienced abuse. So one of the things that our convention has done is maintained a hotline for reporting abuse. Uh, it is staffed by a third-party entity, guidepost, not anybody who is associated with the convention. And I want to put the number up here. Uh, and so if you have some instance of abuse to report, we would encourage you, if that happened in a church, to call this number or send an email. I know that's difficult. I know often for survivors that is rehashing trauma. And so we're not going to chase you down. We want to give you space and believe that you are going to make those decisions on your own. What's right for you. But I want to make this available. Secondly, I want you to know, uh, if that's your experience at our church, uh, we are open to talking about it. We're open to helping you with the reporting process, whatever that might look like. And I want you to know that we have a budget, money set aside to help people with counseling, uh, and we will go over budget this year if we need to. We'll find money wherever we need to find money. But if you've experienced some sort of trauma around abuse, we want to help. I hate that we can't undo what was done. But we want to give you some resources and some great uh, counseling opportunities to try to move forward from here. So this uh, past week, through a very strange circumstance, um, I, I was asked to talk to a reporter from CBS. Um, I am not qualified to speak on behalf of anybody 
anywhere. I don't know why I was asked. But he asked me, how does the church move forward from here? He actually asked me, what, what does being a Christian have to say about this? And this is where I want us to end. We should be the first people to admit wrongdoing. That is an implication of justification by faith. That phrase just means that I'm set right before God. Not because of anything I have done or haven't done, but because of what Jesus has done for me in my place. Which means if you're a follower of Jesus, you've already had to admit to wrongdoing and the fact that you have fallen short. And so there is no reason for us to stop now. And the second thing that I told him, and I want to be very clear about today, is the good news of Jesus is not just for our sin, but Jesus is for sufferers. And just like we find in Psalm chapter 12, that God is present even in our times of pain. And if I can offer you any hope today, it would be that the gospel is very clear. We sang it earlier, that we have a God who weeps and a God who bleeds. A God who took on flesh and did all of this. Who experienced loss and suffering and sorrow to the depths. And if you are suffering this morning, I just want you to know Jesus is not only for you, but with you. That he's been there. So this morning I know it's heavy. And it's a lot. But here's where we are ending. Our hope. Psalm 12. Is that God's words are pure and faithful. Refined by fire. That when God speaks, he speaks truthfully. And we have a great hope this morning. A great hope. Because God Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, has spoken in these last days by his son. So God has revealed himself, his character, his truthfulness, his faithfulness, and Jesus is so. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.